Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 23. I do want to say a quick word about what just transpired. Uh, in the past few weeks, uh, Pastor Eli has been nothing but gracious in sharing all of his wealth of wisdom, as Jeff just expounded upon, but also his knowledge of youth ministry with me. So I'm excited, I truly am excited, to continue to build upon his faithfulness in that ministry. Uh, but give us uh, one big vision and mission for our entire next gen and how they progress when growing up in this church. So we're going to share more of that in the next few weeks. Um, and as Jeff said, be looking out for communication from me uh, in email uh, for parents where you can come. You got concerns with me, you know, anything like that, just come and tell me. That's fine. We're going to hash it out. And then after that, we're going to be on the same page going forward. And so I'm looking forward to that. Um, and as Jeff shared, we were at a staff retreat the past few days. Um, which was great. Uh, I'd like to say, as the funniest staff member, that I'm the reason for the laughter. And so, um, you guys will get to know that. Oh, just ignore him back there. Um, no, nonetheless, I'm really excited. Um, but we're going to continue on in our series this morning, 1159, as we were looking at these last-minute saves, these last-minute miracles that we see in the scriptures. And so today's, I would argue, is probably the most famous the thief on the cross, or as we've entitled it this morning, a rebel remembered. And so as you're turning to Luke chapter 23, I want you to think with me of the image of the cross. You can even look at this giant one right behind me, but think of the image of the cross with me. Because for many of us, particularly those of us who have grown up in the church, I think that we have become a little desensitized to it. It doesn't shock us as it did the first century Christians. It's not the same for us. We see it on t-shirts. We see it on our jewelry. We see it on pictures in our homes. And all with great purpose. But it's not the same shock to us. We don't draw back and recoil in horror as those in the first century did. Rather, we have in part come to see it as a good thing. A sign of hope, a remembrance of sacrifice, a way of life for those who want to follow Jesus. But for today, I want you to place yourself in the first century. Try not to be desensitized to it. Let's allow ourselves to be shocked by it again. If I had an electric chair sitting right next to me and plugged in and it's zapping every now and then, that would be shocking to you, pun intended. Or if I had a noose and a gallows behind me, there are images and associated feelings with that that might uh, be overcoming to you in some manner. And so I want us to look with fresh eyes upon the cross, and particularly the story of what happened on it as Jesus was on it, the interaction that we see between Jesus and this criminal. And so the guiding question I have for today is how does my heart respond to Jesus? We're going to look at a bunch of different responses in the text to Jesus, but how does my heart, how does your heart respond to Jesus on the cross? There's a lot in this narrative. We're not going to be able to cover it all, and that's fine, but we find ourselves toward the end of Luke chapter 23. He, Jesus has been arrested now. He has been mocked by the council. He's appeared before Pilate. Pilate doesn't want anything to do with him, so he sends him off to Herod. Herod doesn't want anything to do with him, so he sends him back to Pilate, and Pilate giving over to the demands of the crowd delivers him over to be crucified. So the focus of our text this morning is verses 32 through 43, but I want to back up and read from verse 26 to better set the context of what's happening for us. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. 
And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Real quick, I want to explain this short little paragraph before we jump in into our main text. Jesus is walking to be crucified. He's carrying his cross, and most likely out of exhaustion, he's probably falling down. They grab Simon of Cyrene, and they put the cross on him. And so they are going to the place of the skull. We're going to read that in just a second. And as he's going along, it reminds me of the story in Mark chapter 10 of blind Bartimaeus as he's going into Jerusalem. The compassion, the mercy, the saving grace of Jesus goes nowhere. It's still on full display right here. And so as they're going along, he sees the daughters of Jerusalem. And these women were most likely professional mourners. In that culture, that was normal. They hated the sight of crucifixions. And so they were weeping, and they are wailing, and they're crying out. And this is upsetting to them. But what Jesus does, as he does in every other situation we read of in scriptures, is he flips the situation on its head. And he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. What he does real quick right here is he gives them a prophecy and a proverb. A prophecy of what's to come and a proverb to teach them. And he's trying to get to the heart of these women. The heart is what's behind this entire passage. He says, where is your heart? You're weeping out loud for me. And that's fine. But you need to weep for yourself for what is coming. For the prophecy is, blessed are the barren in the wombs that never bore and the breast that never nursed. And they'll begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Jesus is saying, there's a judgment coming. And where is your heart? He's most likely alluding to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, but also probably alluding to the second time when he comes, when he comes in judgment. And so he's saying, women of Jerusalem, check your heart. Because it is better, the shocking part, it's better to be barren It's better to have never nursed. You see, in that time, you guys know this, for women to not have children was of utter shame. They put their hope and everything into their children. It was how they would be cared for in their older age. It was the hope of provision. So he's saying that it would be better if you didn't have children. There's something coming. Check your heart. And then he he ends with a proverb, verse 31, for they do these things when the wood is green. If they do these things while I'm among you, while there's life among you, if they crucify me, what will happen when it's dry? What will happen when I'm gone? What kind of persecution can you expect then? But Jesus, full of compassion for them, he addresses them. He wants them to search out something. And then it continues. Verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And then when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, 
since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, this man's done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Would you guys pray with me real quick? Father, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you that we can come together as the family of God to worship and proclaim your truth. And so I pray simply that you would speak to us through your word and your spirit, that you would apply it to our hearts. Search out where we need to grow, Father. Search out where we need to repent. And may you be glorified. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning, I want to highlight again the compassion, the mercy, and the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus is being crucified based on charges of being a false prophet and being a threat to Rome. If you'll remember from Jeff's Good Friday sermon back in April, crucifixion was reserved for rebels. Rebels to Roman rule. The worst of the worst. Criminals who were often insurrectionists. And the Jewish leaders have painted Jesus as this type of leader, as having this type of following. And so he is crucified alongside two real criminals, two rebels to Roman occupation. And as a means of crucifixion, or excuse me, execution, crucifixion was particularly heinous. These people were often beaten and flogged beforehand, made to carry the cross to the site, and then their wrists and their feet were nailed to it, and they were hoisted up. Hoisted up for to be seen as a warning for all. This is what happens to those who rebel. And so they crucified Jesus of Nazareth, Lord of the universe. A perfect and sinless man, innocent of all charges. They crucified him and they hung him up for all to see and for him to die. And as he's hanging there, he is still full of compassion and mercy for these Roman soldiers. These men who had beaten him and mocked him and driven those nails into him, full of compassion, as he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The enduring reflex of Jesus' heart is to forgive. And this is the amazing grace that we just sang about. So that's a brief background to what is happening, but our focus this morning is on the particular interaction between Jesus and the criminal. Jesus and the real rebel to Rome. We need to see not the goodness of the criminal, but again, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And so to do that, we're going to look at three statements this morning. Three statements that reveal the heart of the people to Jesus. They're going to guide our study. And the first of these is that he saved others. He saved others. This is the confession of the rulers and the religious leaders that we see in verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others. It's this confession we need to look at. The Jewish leaders, the religious elite, the rulers in the community, they recognize the simple yet profound truth about Jesus, that he saved people. He saved people. It is his business to save people, both physically and spiritually. And it's ironic, really. They are saying it in a mocking and a demeaning tone, but in light of these small towns and villages and communities that he ministered and he lived, they were aware of what Jesus had done. There's no way they couldn't have been. They couldn't escape the truth that he saved people. The evidence was overwhelming. They'd seen him cast out demons and heal lepers. They'd seen him heal the paralytic in Capernaum and restore the side of the blind man in Jericho. They had heard of him raising the widow's son and of raising Lazarus and calming the storms of the sea, but none of that mattered to them. What they wanted to see Jesus do was one last miracle. Loose the nails from your hands and descend down from the cross. Then, then they might believe. 
You see, the religious rulers were ridiculing Jesus, but they ironically stated truth. He saved others. But that truth that they were stating was lost on them. He saved others, and he could have saved them, and he can save you. They couldn't grasp it. Their hearts were blinded by sin and a desire to see what they thought was justice done. And the humiliation for them, the humiliation of seeing Jesus on a cross, I can't overstate that for you this morning. Their very law in Deuteronomy 21 says that a hanged man is cursed by God. This man is cursed by God, and they have no idea the extent of it. All along the truth that we see them acknowledging about Jesus is blind to them. So it makes us who are Christians overcome with joy and thankfulness because we realize the truth that they are proclaiming. He saved others, and he has saved us. Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you are a Christian, you have been transferred to that kingdom. We've been given new life. The saving power of Jesus has not gone anywhere. We see him at work in our church and in our community. We hear of disciples being made in Mexico, in China, in Russia, in Tanzania. God's kingdom is going forth to the ends of the earth. Jesus was saving souls then, and he's doing it today. He saved others, they proclaimed, and they had no idea the truth of those words because they hadn't experienced it for themselves. This leads us to our next statement. Save yourself. Save yourself, Jesus. Three times we read of three different people or people groups telling Jesus to save himself. Verse 35, the religious rulers, after saying he saved others, they proclaimed, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. Verse 37, the soldiers mocked him and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Three instances of people yelling at Jesus to save himself. Save yourself if you're the Christ. Save yourself if you're the king. Save yourself and us. And to each of those, he never responds. He's silent. You see, his sole focus in ministry, what all the miracles and the teachings of his life that we read about, what all of those were working towards was for him to be on that cross, for him to be lifted up and displayed before men, for him to be seen as cursed and forsaken by God, the spotless lamb who is now sacrificed for all. And Jesus fulfills that mission as only he can. He never responds to them never replies to their sarcastic accusations and their demeaning mockery, but he suffers in silence, as Isaiah 53 tells us. In light of our focus this morning, I want to narrow in on one of these save-yourselves. I want to narrow in on the other criminal who railed at Jesus to save himself and them. He's angry. He's an insurrectionist against Rome. He's politically motivated, and most likely he's heard these rumblings about Jesus. He understands him to be a political messiah, somebody who can usher in some change in Rome to overthrow this Roman rule. And he has the outlook of a zealot. His contempt for Jesus is fueled by his earthbound politics as he mocks the one man who can deliver him. And so he lashes out, and tragically, He expresses no thought of sorrow like the other thief. No guilt, no repentance, no concern for forgiveness. And even more tragically, he heard not a word from Jesus. No argument, no warning, no forgiveness, just silence as he raged. You see, his idea of Jesus was already preconceived. 
He was trying to make Jesus fit his mold to accomplish his purpose. So let me tell you this morning, guard your hearts against that. Guard your hearts against the preconceived idea of Jesus. Sin wants to blind us to some of the teachings of Jesus and make him be our version of a savior, our version of God, our version of a Messiah. We can embrace what we agree with, but the stuff that rubs us the wrong way, now that's hard. You want me to bless my enemies, those who hate me? You tell me it's better to give than to receive? If I lose my life for you, Jesus, then I find it? Blessed am I when I'm persecuted? Those are hard for me. We want him to look like what we want him to be. In our sin nature, we want Jesus to look like what we want him to be. The Jews didn't want a suffering Messiah. They wanted a long-awaited king, a deliverer, an overthrower of the powers that be. So the question for us is, who do you want Jesus to be? Who do you want Jesus to be? Our Savior, but not Lord of your life? Just a guy who rescues you from hell? Or maybe some good moral teaching for my family to follow? All of those things are byproducts of who Jesus is and his sole focus and mission. So we can't pick and choose. We can't make Jesus into who we want him to be, but rather are called, are called to submit our lives to who he says he is. But I think what bothers me the most and scares me the most about this statement is that it falls in line with exactly what Satan wants Jesus to do in the temptation. Do you remember three years previous, the start of his ministry, he goes out to the desert to be tempted and Satan is there with him. And here we see the echo, reveal your glory, Jesus, turn a rock into bread. Throw yourself off the temple and your angels will save you. The temptation for Jesus was ultimately to reveal his glory apart from the cross. And these people in the story are unknowingly saying the same thing. They're echoing it out. Save yourself, Jesus. Come down off the cross. You don't have to die. There it is again. Reveal your glory apart from death. But praise God that he didn't that he stayed on the cross and that he died and he rose again and he ascended to the right hand of the Father and in so doing, defeated once and for all the powers of sin and death. Amen? Brings us to our last statement. The first one, he saved others. The second one, save yourself, Jesus. And the third, remember me. Verse 40, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Is this not the heartfelt plea of a sinner who's experienced God's grace? A sinner in need of a savior. But what's interesting about this story, what I love about it, is that it's only found in Luke. In Matthew and Mark, the story of the crucifixion, it's both of the criminals railing at Jesus, both of them deriding him. But Luke tells us that a change happened. Something stirred in this guy's heart as he is railing at Jesus. And so he asks his fellow criminal, do you not even fear God? Because in Luke's interaction, it was only the one criminal railing at him. But this one has remained silent now. He's probably railing, but then he gets silent and he watches and he listens, and he sees that something is different. We can imagine what brought about this change of heart. There was a spiritual awakening that took place. He's seen the meekness of Jesus as he allowed himself to be punished. He's likely heard Jesus' charge to the mourning daughters of Jerusalem that we looked at at the beginning. He heard the prayer of Jesus offered for the soldiers who had beaten him and mocked him. But most noticeably, there was an obvious difference between him and Jesus. 
There was a holiness difference. This man was innocent. This man was not guilty of his crimes. And what awakens in his heart is a beautiful posture of grace. Do you not fear God? We're being punished for our sins, our crimes, but this man has done nothing. So there are two things that the criminal models for us in his words to Jesus. And the first is humility. He models humility. He understands that he is being punished justly for his sins. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't cry out for Jesus to save him, but he accepts his punishment. And as he too is hanging on a cross, he's crucified for all to see he is humbled. And he acknowledges his wrongdoing. But that humility doesn't stay there by itself. It turns into a fear of God. His humility leads to a fear of God. He's come to fear God. He realizes that the life he lived doesn't measure up. He realizes that God has a standard that we are called to live by, and he doesn't meet it. He falls far, far short. What's beautiful in this is that his humility doesn't turn to self-pity. He doesn't turn to self-wallow. He doesn't develop an Eeyore complex saying, woe is me, I'm being crucified. But his humility motivates him to fear God. He knew there was judgment coming. He was going to die. And with his last minute wish, his last minute cry out, his last minute fear of God, he asked to be remembered. For Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. He doesn't say, Jesus, remember me for some of those good things I did, or Jesus, remember me for my good works, or Jesus, remember me because I'm now defending you against the other criminal. He simply says, remember me. No self-righteousness, no emphasis on his works, just humility and a fear of God. He acknowledges that he is there justly. And what's amazing in this passage and what makes it so famous is the response of Jesus. Because he responds with the compassion and the saving grace that he's been marked by his entire ministry. Today, today you will be with me in paradise. What a glorious statement for this humbled criminal to hear. He understands Jesus to be the Messiah King. He has some understanding that he's going to usher in a new kingdom. And he just wants to be remembered on that day. But what does Jesus give him? Immediacy. Today you will be with me in paradise. You're going to be in my presence today. It is as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he's away from the body, but he's at home with the Lord. What joy, what bliss and extravagance and a love awaited him and it awaits all of us who have placed our faith in him. It's been recorded for us that the dying words of the astronomer Copernicus are as follows. I do not ask for the grace that you gave St. Paul, nor can I ask for the grace that you gave St. Peter, but the mercy, the mercy that you showed that criminal that mercy show to me. So let me close with a few application questions. One application question for each of our statements. And I want us to listen to where the Spirit is convicting us or calling us to grow or encouraging us to change. And the first one, He saved others. Is Jesus a theoretical truth for your life? Is Jesus just a theoretical truth for your life? Or has His life and work changed your heart? Before your gut reaction is, yes, of course, I'm here, I'm listening to you. Hear me out. They understood, the religious leaders understood something. They acknowledged this truth about Christ. He saved others. They understood that his business was saving people, yet this truth was not enough to convince them. Not enough to change their hearts. So has it changed yours? Are you a part of the others? Has Jesus saved you, redeemed you, to where you can confidently say that I am his and he is mine? 
We can say with Paul to the Philippians, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Is that true of you? Save yourself, Jesus. So the question comes, do you follow the way of the cross? Three times we saw where people told Jesus to save himself as he's hanging up there. Save yourself if you're the king. Save yourself if you're the Messiah. Save yourself and us. And yet he never did. For he had taught earlier that those who lose their life for his sake will find it. But do you remember what he said before? If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and carry it. So do you submit to the sovereign will of God for your life? Do you praise him on the mountaintops when it's easy and in the valleys? Or is your praise determined upon your circumstances? Expect suffering in this life. Expect trials and hardships, things that stir the very foundation of your soul. But in the midst of all of those, cling to the suffering Savior who died for you. And lastly, remember me. Is your pride blinding you to your sin? Is your pride blinding you to your sin? The rebel who was remembered, he was humbled. He had been railing along at Jesus alongside the other criminal. Yet the Spirit worked upon his heart. He came to recognize his sin and the impending judgment of it. Yet in his humility, he came to fear God. And in fearing God, he simply asked to be remembered. So I pray that that spirit of humility that we see in this rebel would be true of us at Christ's community. That we would be willing to confess our sins to one another. That we wouldn't be dissuaded from it out of fear of being truly known, but that we would be humbled. And in our humility, turn to fear God more. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for your sovereign work in our lives. We praise you that you are still saving others and that you have saved us this morning. I pray if there's somebody here that doesn't know you, that you would put your spirit upon them. They would come to know you, that they would repent and believe. And Father, we see repeatedly where they cried out to you for you to save yourself, yet you didn't. So we praise you this morning that you are a God who stays and remains on the cross and you died for us. But you didn't stay dead and you rose again. We praise you for that this morning. But lastly, I pray in the humility that we see in this rebel, this criminal, of simply being asked to remember, I pray that that humility would be amongst us in this church. It would be marked by humility and marked by a fear of you above all else. Would we praise you now in spirit and truth, worshiping you as the one true risen Lord of the universe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.